Stories Perspective. Hello and welcome to this edition of Paris Perspective with me, David Coffey. The poor handling of the AUKUS submarine deal last summer left France clutching at straws when it came to asserting its presence in the Indo-Pacific region. China has called the US-UK-Australia Security Pact irresponsible and France has been making overtures to the other regional powers such as Indonesia and Vietnam to push for more influence in its former colonial neighbourhood. Now today I'm joined in studio by Antoine Bondaz who's research fellow at the Foundation for Strategic Research here in Paris. Antoine, it's great to have you on the programme today. Thank you very much. Okay, we're going to dive straight in. What exactly is France's strategy in the Indo-Pacific now that the AUKUS deal has left relations with traditional allies in a very poor state? So maybe before discussing the French strategy in the Indo-Pacific, I think it's very important to remind everyone about the French interest in the region. Mm. France is not an observer in the Indo-Pacific. France is a resident power in the Indo-Pacific. We have more than 1.7 million French people living on French overseas territories from uh, Iranian Island to uh, French Polynesia. It's more than 92% of the spatial economic zone and maritime domain of France, and we have more than 7,000 soldiers permanently deployed in the region. Mm. So that makes actually the Indo-Pacific an issue of sovereignty interest, not only on, on business or, or cultural interest, uh, etc. So France decided to lay out its uh, Indo-Pacific strategy a few years ago, in 2018, actually, mm-hmm. when President Macron visited in May 2018 Australia. Uh, and that strategy initially was very security and defense focused, and it explained why the Ministry of Armed Forces in 2019 were the first ministry to actually release its own Indo-Pacific strategy. It was a security strategy. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 2019-2020, the strategy was diversified to include, of course, much more business interests, cultural interests, uh, global interests, etc. And the new strategy was presented, updated and presented in July 2021, so this year, uh, focusing much more on the trade relations we have with the countries in the regions, uh, with the global uh, stakes in the region, including uh, the, the need to to address the fight and the mitigation of climate change, etc. Mm-hmm. Does the AUKUS deal put into question the world strategy? No. Yeah. It forces France, to be clear, to recalibrate. Uh, Australia was actually one of the three key strategic partners of France in the region, along India and Japan. Australia is no longer a strategic partner yeah. on that, to, to be very clear. And the, and the relations have deteriorated to an all-time low, I would say, and it's not going to change in the foreseeable uh, future, at least in the coming weeks or coming months. So it brings actually uh, the necessity on the French side to recalibrate, to uh, reach out to other Indo-Pacific countries, including uh, uh, Indonesia, including Korea, something actually that some of it had been advocated for quite a few years. So I would say it, 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 it's something good in this guy, the idea that it forced us, actually, the AUKUS deal, to rethink a little bit our strategy. But to be clear, once again, our interests remain in change in the region. So we are not going to leave in the Pacific. We're still going to keep the Indo-Pacific strategy, but it's going to evolve a little bit. 
involving that evolution, the importance of New Caledonia in the region now, obviously, seems to have, it seems to have increased tenfold over the last ten years. And of course, we have referenda coming up, etc. So, um, how important is New Caledonia to France? Has it always been there, or is it now really coming to a, a new level of importance? I think it has always been very important. Uh, we need to get back, of course, to history, especially in the 1980s mm. when we had like very violent uh, demonstration and, and, and huge tensions uh, in, in the islands. Then with the Numea Agreement of 1988 and the decision to hold in of the longer term. wasn't it? Was yeah, 1998. Yeah. In the longer term to hold uh, so the three referendums and we're going to have the, the third one uh, in, in the coming days. What is quite important for France is two things, I think. To remind that um, we are following a very democratic process, that uh, there is this consultation, this referendum, and the population in New Caledonia can express itself mm. and, and, and decide on their own future. Uh, but New Caledonia so far is still part of France, still part of the French Republic. It's one territory like the others, I would say, is not uh, in a subcategory of anything. And it will be very, very important in the coming weeks, actually, after the referendum to make sure that we don't have a new peak in some of violence, in some of tensions in the sure. islands, uh, because the independentists uh, associations have called actually a boycott for the referendum. So we need to make sure that even though the result of the referendum won't be recognized by some of the people in New Caledonia, we can move forward, uh, find maybe a new agreement, kind of, mm. and make sure at least that their situation remains as stable as possible in uh, New Caledonia. And now looking, um, let's just say, with the relationship between Paris and Beijing, um, am I right in saying that France uh, has been running with the hare and chasing with the hounds when it comes to dealing with China? Like Paris... Uh, especially over the last year with Macron maybe taking a firmer stance with uh, China um, about human rights issues, Uyghurs, etc. But at the end of the day, Paris also needs to cooperate with Beijing because of the Paris Climate Accord, about biodiversity, about the reforms of the World Trade Organization. So how are direct relations, what is the how do our direct relations, um, how do they stand between Beijing and Paris at the moment? So some may call it ambiguous. Yeah. Um, the French diplomats would call it like tri-dimensional, the idea that uh, <laughs> as I like from that. the European view, China is both a cooperation partner an economic competitor and a systemic rival. It means that we are fully aware that we have to cooperate with Beijing on many issues from climate change to preventing the next pandemic, etc. And at the same time, China is for sure a competitor and more and more a rival in terms of norms, in terms of um, systems of governance, mm. uh, etc. And, and we've seen it over the last few months. So it, it's quite complicated for Paris, like any other EU member state, to, to balance, I would say, its relationship uh, with Beijing. President Macron, starting in 2017, had two priorities. The mm. first one was to rebalance the economic relations with uh, China that are very unbalanced with a huge trade deficit. Uh, and on that dimension, I would say that um, the results we've achieved are, are very, very limited. Mm -hmm. So the beef embargo was uh, lifted, but there has been no rebalance, I would say, of, of, of trade flows between the two countries. The second dimension was climate change. 
Mm -hmm. uh, some might say that thanks to France, China stayed in the Paris Agreement, the COP21 Agreement. Mm. I think we need to uh, make sure that if China stayed in the agreement, it's not because of France, it's because of the US. That mm -hmm. Because the US left under yes. the Trump administration, China had even more interest in staying within the Paris uh, Agreement. So let's say that the results of the France-China uh, relation of the French-China policy has been quite mixed uh, and a little bit disappointing. Yeah. Uh, the key question we have now, and especially in the coming month with the French presidency, is how at the EU level relations unfold with Beijing in a sequence in which there is a deterioration of the relation between Brussels and Beijing, between the capital cities, the capitals, uh, and, and Beijing. We've seen it on trade and investment, Uh, with the comprehensive agreement on investment that is now frozen. We are seeing it now with China trying to economically coerce Lithuania over the question of Taiwan. Uh, we've, we've seen it on, on many, many aspects. And the key question is how do we manage yeah. the deterioration of the relations because it's going to keep deteriorating. <sighs> Indeed, that does bring me to uh, my next question, um, specifically Xi Jinping's uh, signature Belt and Road Initiative um, that you mentioned there, or you alluded to there. It's drawing in Eastern European countries that are becoming a key part to this um, economic um, superhighway that uh, Beijing really uh, expects to, uh, to, to evolve over the coming years. Um, but Brussels, of course, then also has its aims to to give a counter-proposal and a counter kind of a European similar trade corridor uh, further down the line. So can we expect a showdown between European partners and China over this expansion of the Belt and Road into European traditional spheres of influence? Mm. I think there are two main trends um, these days. The first one is a deterioration of relations, especially between Eastern European countries mm. and China. Uh, we've seen it uh, with Lithuania, mm. of course, but more broadly about like almost all of these countries, maybe with the exception of, of Hungary. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what's happening is basically that Eastern European countries are refocusing uh, their foreign policy on the US, uh, also in connection with, with what they perceive as a Russian threat. Mm. So they are actually not investing as much as before politically on China. It explains why the 17 plus 1, the special um, discussion formats, including 17 European countries, not only from the EU, uh, but also Ukraine, Belarus, etc., is basically weakened these yeah. days with Lithuania uh, that has left. Czech Republic might leave actually in, in the coming weeks, etc. So deterioration of relation between Eastern Europe and China. The second trend, if the EU is willing to compete much more with China, especially on connectivity, basically on building infrastructures. Yeah. The Belt and Road Initiative is not only about infrastructures, even though it was seen for long as one of the key elements. On that, we need to be very clear. The EU remains by far the largest provider of overseas development aid in the world, the largest. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, it's subsidies, it's not loans. So in Africa, in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe, the EU is doing a lot, and the EU is expecting to do even more. That's why a few days ago, the EU Commission accepted to start a new project called Global Gateway. Yeah. Global Gateway will be funded with more than 300 billions euros with one key objective improve connectivity that means building 
infrastructures around Europe, but also in Southeast Asia, in Africa, etc., to make sure that these countries have the, the opportunity and the choice between some infrastructures built with Chinese money when they have then to pay back and you, it's that most of the deal are not being very transparent yeah. or some EU money in much more transparent, much more higher quality infrastructure. And then, once again, what is important for the European perspective is to offer the alternative, the choice to these emerging countries. Now, if, if correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think with with viewing China and especially its development and economic um, into an economic powerhouse since the 1980s, um, a lot of that success was built on soft power. Uh, also, one of the main issues was no direct foreign military interventions, apart from the occasional uh, spat with India on the border there in the Himalayas. Um, but China's non-interventionist policy however, is one of the keys to its success. But could this change? I mean, is mainland Chinese intervention in Taiwan a viable scenario here? I mean, we are seeing a buildup in the uh, Indo-Pacific. Taiwan is being used as a pawn, and it's obviously it's an issue of sovereignty for the mainland Chinese. Can we see? Mm -hmm. Are people scared that there could be a military intervention? Uh, I think there are, there are two things. The first one is in terms of military intervention uh, worldwide. Is China in the coming years going to military intervene like the US or mm. like some European countries, including France, have been intervening uh, over the last few years? Um, we have no indication of that. We know that, of course, China built its first overseas base, military base in Djibouti in 2017. There might be other to come, including uh, in, in Africa. Africa or in, in Southeast Asia. But so far, China is unwilling to intervene militarily abroad. Mm. The question of Taiwan, of course, is a little bit um, different between China, consider Beijing, consider uh, Taiwan as being part mm. of the People's Republic of China. This is what they call the One China Principle. It's very different from the One China Policy that we Europeans, Americans or Japanese uh, implement. The One China Policy is just that we consider that you have diplomatic relations either with Beijing or with Taipei, and we all have, mm. all of us, the Europeans, diplomatic relations with Beijing, and we do not intend to change that one China policy. But what is con very concerning is, of course, the, the rise of tensions in mm. the Taiwan Straits, that China flexing up its muscles, um, especially its military muscles. How does that manifest itself? Mm -hmm. I mean, we, talk, you know, we have got geostrategists sure. who always say, oh, well, commentators refer to China's assertiveness and mm -hmm. aggression directed mm -hmm. towards uh, pe mm -hmm. potential Western partners, but how exactly... I would say there is some structural aspect. Of course, Chinese military expenditures have increased eightfold ah, in ah. 20 years when the Taiwan uh, military expenditures stagnated over the same period of time. So the balance of power is shifting in favor of Beijing, of course, in the Taiwan Strait. Second, China has been much more assertive in terms of displaying its military uh, power. And we've seen it over the last few months, few weeks, with China um, sending its military airplane into what we call the Taiwan's aerial defense identification zone. This is not the airspace of Taiwan, mm -hmm. but this is at least a zone in which the, the Chinese uh, military plane did not go before and are not going. The objective, of course, is to put pressure on, on Taiwan to test uh, Taiwan air defense, etc. So, so what we need to be clear that is a conflict likely in the coming month or coming years, 
I'm not quite sure. Mm. I, I don't think so. But what is important is to make sure that we Europeans, we have a role to play in preventing a conflict. It's mm -hmm. not when there will be a conflict, and I hope it will never happen, uh, that the Europeans will be able to do anything. Uh, the Europeans have a key role to play, and it's a role that they can play now in preventing a conflict, in making sure that China fully understands that the costs of initiating a military conflict with Taiwan would be too high. Mm -hmm. And just to end our conversation there, was something that you touched on there, especially with uh, China um, setting up its base in Djibouti. Um, recently, there was an Africa-China summit that was hosted uh, by uh, Senegal in Dakar. Uh, and Senegal's foreign minister openly called for Beijing to get involved in the fight against jihadists in the Sahel. Of course, the Sahel would have been traditionally very much a French-controlled region. Uh, uh, but now we have the arrival of the Wagner um, the Russian mercenaries in the Central African Republic and elsewhere. Will the Chinese take up the, uh, the call to get involved in the G5 or within uh, the Sahel fight against jihadists? I, I don't believe so. Uh, China is de facto doing um, counter-terrorism operation outside of its border, including in, in Central Asia, and we've seen it uh, in uh, de facto Afghanistan or, or more broadly in, in Central Asia. Mm -hmm. Will China intervene in Sahel to uh, help the local countries in fighting against jihadist group, I don't believe so. Uh, what is sure is that China is trying to protect its overseas uh, citizens, that China is using for that not the People Liberation Army, but most of the time uh, private military security companies, yeah. and that it may remain actually so in, in the foreseeable future, but I don't really see actually China sending special forces, the PLA, as far as of Africa to fight against uh, terrorists. Okay, Antoine Bondaz, Research Fellow at the Foundation for Strategic Research here in Paris. Thank you very much for thank being you. a Paris Perspective today. And thank you for watching. We'll be back in the new year for the next edition of Paris Perspective with me, David Coffey.